There are a lot of similarities uh, between Daniel 4 and Daniel 5. Um, you, may have, you may have noticed some of them. Um, the main point of both of them seems to be that God is sovereign over human authority. Um, they both feature an arrogant king showing off, uh, and then he gets humbled. Uh, there's a supernatural event that strikes fear into his heart. He doesn't understand it. He calls for his magicians. They can't interpret it. Uh, finally, Daniel comes in, and Daniel can interpret it, and Daniel solves the problem, and then the king is humbled in the end. Uh, you know, it's almost beat for beat, uh, the same narrative, the same story. So then the question you've got to ask yourself is, why are they both here? Um, is, it, you know, is it just that we're, we're obtuse and we didn't get it the first time, and so he's telling us the same story again to make exactly the same point? Uh, maybe not. Um, when they're that similar, I think that the, uh, the thing that we have to do immediately is start to try to pay attention to exactly what's different. And if we can figure out what's different, then we can figure out why we need both and we can figure out uh, what uh, the, the real point, what the different point of the second one is. Okay. So what are some differences? Um, you know, in the first one, from last week, Daniel encourages Nebuchadnezzar, offers him a chance to repent. Belshazzar doesn't get such an offer. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was being, seems to be being disciplined for his... There it goes. I'm going to be all right. Okay, so we're just going to put the Bible over there. Okay. Logan, you can just edit that part out. Where was I? Okay. Uh, so Nebuchadnezzar seems to be that he was being disciplined for his pride. Um, Belshazzar is just being punished. Um, likewise, Daniel, uh, well, you know, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4 uh, he seems to have some rapport with Daniel. He has some respect for Daniel. Uh, he speaks to Daniel uh, with a little bit of honor. He seems to like Daniel. He seems to know that he needs Daniel. Um, Belshazzar, on the other hand, uh, has nothing but disrespect for Daniel. He's, he's, he insults Daniel. Um, Daniel doesn't even seem to be on the payroll anymore. Like The queen mother has to remind Belshazzar that Daniel even exists. Uh, you know, maybe you should call for this guy. And when he comes in, Belshazzar says, well, I've heard of you that you supposedly have this great wisdom. Um, but, you know, and you're, you're Daniel, one of those exiles from Judah that my father Nebuchadnezzar brought, right? Um, he's insulting him. He's trying to put him in his place. He's haughty toward him. Very different from Nebuchadnezzar's uh, attitude toward him. In the same way, uh, Daniel shows respect and affection for Nebuchadnezzar in the way he speaks to him. When Daniel perceives that Nebuchadnezzar is going to fall on some hard times, remember Daniel, in, in chapter 4, Daniel is dismayed. He's quiet for a long time. He doesn't want to give Nebuchadnezzar this bad news. He wants to give him good news. Uh, but with Belshazzar, Daniel's immediately like, you keep your gifts, and let me tell you what's going to happen. 
Here's all of the things that you've forgotten, all the things that you've done wrong, and here's what's about to happen to you. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't seem to be bothered by it at all the way he was with Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Belshazzar's pride, in contrast with Nebuchadnezzar, I think also seems to be of a different order. It's a higher magnitude of pride coming from Belshazzar. Uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, he actually had accomplished something amazing in building that empire. Now, he, in doing so, he had forgotten, he had ignored the fact that the talent that he had that allowed him to do it had been given to him by God. He ignored the fact that God had given him favor in various battles. He ignored the fact that everything that had happened had really had happened because God was giving it to him. And Nebuchadnezzar needed to be reminded of that. But Belshazzar, I mean, Belshazzar is not even Nebuchadnezzar's son. Um, he's somewhere down the line. This, is, this may be a couple of generations of kings later. He's not even the main king. You notice that what he offers Daniel is not to be second in the kingdom. He doesn't have that to offer because he is the second in the kingdom. Uh, Belshazzar himself is the second in the kingdom. All he can offer Daniel is third. Um, so he's, a, he's a kind of a vice regent. Um, his father is the emperor. His father is somewhere else. Nebuchadnezzar is his grandfather, his great-grandfather, somewhere up the line. Uh, and, of course, it's you know acceptable idiom in that language to call your great-grandfather your father, as we would say, your forefather. Um, he's heard all the stories. He should have known about Daniel. Um, so when Nebuchadnezzar is proud, he actually, he's, act, he's, he's got something to be proud of. He needs to be reminded of the facts, of where he actually stands in the cosmos. Uh, but Belshazzar is proud of nothing. It's kind of like, you know, I don't need to be mean, but it's kind of like Conrad Hilton. He actually built a business empire. You know, he accomplished something. Uh, you know, the Hilton name became a household word for comfort all over the world. Um, Conrad Hilton probably needed to be reminded that the talent with which he had done that had come from the Lord and that the Lord had worked in circumstances to make that possible and that he had really owed it all to the Lord and he needed to be reminded that he really should pay attention to the people that he had stepped on and stepped over to get where he was. But his great-granddaughter, if she stands up and says, look at what I have accomplished, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit worse. In fact, it's a lot worse. It's a little, like, you can tolerate it from Conrad, but from Paris, you're kind of like, what are you, like, if you were to hear her, I'm not saying that she has said this, but if you were to hear her say, look at the, look at the empire that I have made. Oh, congratulations, Paris. Uh, that's, a, that's a different kind of arrogance. And that's the kind that Belshazzar has here. He's, he's, Boasting and showing off in this passage. I don't know if you pick up on it, how many times it talks about the number of lords and ladies and vassals that are all at this feast, a thousand of his lords. Um, we know from the architecture and some of the writings of the day, from what archaeologists have uncovered, that, that, there, that there, was a, you know, a, there would be a large banquet room in a king's palace. But then he would also have his own banquet room. Would room where if he was eating and drinking and making merry, he usually was doing it with a little more privacy. The fact that Belshazzar, it says in front of all of these people, he is drinking. He's, he is showing off. 
Um, some scholars suggest it's because he knows that Cyrus is on the way, and this is this is a war feast. Uh, we don't know for sure, but that's a good possibility. Uh, the fact of the matter is, though, he is he is making a show of it. Um, Nebuchadnezzar stands and and brags within his own heart. Look at look at what I have done making this this empire of Babylon. Belshazzar is raising a glass in front of everybody, and uh, and flaunting. Uh, his power and authority and his arrogance. Uh, the main difference when we get down to it is that chapter 4 was about really about the arrogance of one man and the humbling of that one man. His discipline and his restoration. Right? This was a lesson that God uh, can remove and restore individual kings. That was the takeaway. For all of the living to know that God gives the kingdoms to whom he will. Um, it was a message of hope for Israel that God would be true to his promise to restore their own king who had been cut off, if you remember, it'd be, and left as a stump with its roots. That he would raise up the Messiah who would sit on David's throne. Um, we saw that the promise that, well... Uh, kings oppress the poor and the weak, uh, this Messiah will, uh, and those kings will always be eventually cut off at their pride. The Messiah, Jesus, cares for the poor and the weak. He was not cut off for his own arrogance, but for ours. And, his, and in his restoration, we are restored. Right? That was the point uh, last time. And this time, it's not about the one man being cut off and restored. This time, it's about the entire kingdom being cut off and destroyed. Chapter 5 is about the whole kingdom. Not only are kings subject to God's sovereignty, but entire kingdoms are. In chapter 5, Babylon's pigeons have come home to roost. In chapter 5, God is finally dealing with Babylon as an entire kingdom. Uh, Again, notice how many times throughout the narrative the number of people who are participating in this feast is re-enumerated. Three, four times, his, his lords, his wives, their wives, all of these people. When Belshazzar has the idea to bring in these vessels from the temple in Jerusalem and commit this desecration, all of these other people, all of the lords from all over Babylon are participating in it. It emphasizes it again and again that they all did it. Uh, he brought in the vessels, so that everyone could drink them. And then everyone drank from them. And then they all drank from them, it says again. The entire kingdom participates in this. Belshazzar is the leader of it. But the whole kingdom is involved. Um, now, before we get too much further, I think it'd be, uh, it's, it's worth addressing the supernatural element here. Right? A finger appears from nowhere and writes words on a wall, engraves them. This isn't even a vision. It seems as if, you know, when this is done in artistry, the, the letters are often glowing, like, like maybe they're not really there, they're just something that somebody's seeing. But it says they're engraved in the plaster. This finger appears and, and writes into the plaster itself. And everybody sees it. This is, not, this is not simply Belshazzar having a drunken vision. Everyone sees it and is, and is perplexed by it. So... As a modern, you know, 21st century Westerner, 
you're saying, well, this is obviously you know, a myth. This is obviously a story. This couldn't have really happened this way because we know stuff like this doesn't happen. Now, if you reason that way, I think I want to you know, qu just quickly say, notice that what you're doing is technically known as question begging. You're saying, this must not have been a supernatural event because supernatural events don't happen. Right? You can't, that's a, that's a circle if you do that. But the other thing, and maybe, and maybe this is even more egregious, if we do that, uh, we are, as Westerners, committing an act uh, of cultural imperialism. Right? We're saying that our cultural understanding of cosmology and how the world works and what supernaturalism is, and how, and when we know that that doesn't exist, and all those other cultures all over the world that think that it does and think that they've seen things that suggest that it does and think that they've experienced it, they're just kind of stupid and backward. But we're the enlightened ones. Um, you know, if we do that, we might be engaging in some of the same type of arrogance that Belshazzar himself uh, is experiencing. Uh, maybe we should approach a text like this with a little bit of humility ourselves and suggest maybe the people that saw this, maybe they saw what they saw. Maybe you don't have to explain it. Maybe you can ex take their word for it uh, when they wrote it down and said this is what happened. As uh, Hamlet said, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy, Horatio. Um, okay. So digging into this story itself, uh, this chapter is really beginning to, to draw together the dramatic tension that has existed since the first sentences of this book. Uh, if you remember all the way back, if you've got it open, just look back at verse 2 of chapter 1, which says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah, into his hand, that's Nebuchadnezzar, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Uh, presumably, Nebuchadnezzar did this with all of his vanquished foes. It's a, it's a gesture that's designed to communicate to those conquered people that even your gods are subject to me. Uh, if you ever saw the old movie, The Fall of the Roman Empire, um, there's a scene where one of the Roman uh, representatives is trying to get the Germans on their side for a particular conflict. And, they, you know, and the Germans tell him, our god is the god of fire. If your god is really greater than ours, then you should be able to touch our god. And they hold him and they press a, a lit torch into the palm of his hand. And he like... And he pairs it. And he doesn't cry out. And that convinces the Germans to join them because, well, maybe, maybe Mars, the god of war of the Romans, really is greater than our god. Um, or if you ever saw the movie Troy, um, you might remember that when the, the Greeks finally get into Troy, one of the things that you see happening in the chaos is that they go into the temple of Apollo and they pull down that statue and crush it. Right? This is a gesture that says, you know, your god Apollo can't save you from us. Um, and Nebuchadnezzar says, I presume to all of his vanquished peoples as he's conquering, your gods are weaker than my god. I'm taking your god's best stuff and I'm putting it in the treasury of my own god. Uh, not only am I taking your people captive, but I'm taking your gods captive. Right? They didn't have statues of, of Yahweh uh, in Israel for Nebuchadnezzar to take. So he takes what he can. He takes the vessels uh, from the temple.
So for the Israelites, uh, you could imagine how especially perplexing this would be. How troubling this would be. That when they are taken captive, God is not only letting them go, but God is letting his own vessels that represent his presence be taken captive and put into the treasury of this false god. That is That begins, I think, the dramatic tension of the whole book. That the Israelites must be watching, going, when is God going to do something about this? Because they've heard the stories. They grew up. They know the history. They know about Samuel and Saul and David. And if you remember those stories, you remember uh, in, uh, early in Samuel's life, the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. You remember what happened when the Ark of the Covenant... This is, this is the, the closest thing that Israel has to the manifest presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines... And they take it into one of their cities, and immediately there's a plague of rats and hemorrhoids. And they take it into another city, and the same thing happens. This plague of rats and hemorrhoids, and another city, and another city. And all of the five cities of the Philistines, these plagues follow the Ark of the Covenant until they say, we are not keeping this. (laughs) And they put it on an ox cart. Uh, kind of a remarkable story. They take, a, they take a cow who had just given birth and they hitch her up to a cart and they put the ark on the cart and send her off and she goes straight toward the land of Israel because they're like, this has got to be the hand of God. Right? A cow doesn't leave her, her calf after she's just given birth. You know, they want to make sure that this, uh, that this cart is going where the God that owns it wants it to go. So the Israelites are seeing not only themselves, but the vessels of God's temple taken into captivity and put into the treasury of the god Marduk. When are the, when's the plagues going to start? The last time we were captive, there were ten plagues. The last time uh, God's vessels were captive, there were these other plagues. When is God going to do something about this? This can't stand. This aggression can't stand, man. Thank you. All right. Every passing year must make them wonder. And now, not only are these holy vessels held captive, but they are being used in a boastful, drunken orgy to praise false gods in front of thousands of the, of the lords of Babylon. The dramatic tension is really building here. God must, an Israelite who is aware of this, must have been deeply disturbed and fearful. God must act soon, right? He's got to do something now. Now he's got to do something, right? And then, in throughout the story, the... Uh, the author very deliberately uses more literary devices to heighten that tension. So like in the very first couple of verses, you get this, this tension amped up that now they are using these holy vessels in the sacrilegious, desecrating way. And what's going to happen? Right, so verse 5 is when the finger appears and finally something is happening. But what is it? And we are left with Belshazzar wondering what it is. Right, Belshazzar... It, uh, 
When it says that his, his knees knocked together, the Aramaic there, it's literally that the, the knots of his loins were loosened. Right? He wet himself. He's, he's freaked out. He's so scared that he peed his pants. Uh, and we are left with the same mystery that he is. He, we are left watching, wondering what the... Like we, we don't get to read it either. Not for 20 more verses. He keeps the author, the narrator keeps delaying it and delaying it and delaying it. He, you know, all of these things happen that uh, that that keep pushing it back. It's kind of like in a movie where, you know, something is happening over there, but we're just looking at the faces of the people over here, and watching their expressions change, and we don't get to see what was over there, and it's delayed and delayed and delayed, and we start to feel this anxiety. When are we going to get to see it? What is happening? What is going on? Or kind of like maybe in in Stranger Things, you knew it was coming. <laughs> you knew it was going to happen. I mean, come on, we're honestly a few months late. In Stranger Things, you don't get to see the 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 monster, the demigorgon, uh, until like you know what is it, episode six? It's like pretty far in. But you spend the first several episodes going, what what is this monster like? <laughs> what is going on? Um, the narrator is using those same types of devices to keep. Pushing the tension, pushing the tension, pushing the tension, making us more and more as readers anxious to find out what's happening. It begins to happen in verse 5. Um, but he uses this vivid description of the king's fear response. Right? He could have just said the king was really afraid and moved on straight to Daniel coming in. Uh, but no, we introduce new characters, we introduce the queen mother, we introduce the magicians. And this whole scenario plays out that we've seen three or four times now. Of the, 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 the king is worried about something. He brings in the magicians. They can't answer the question. We go through the whole speech over and over and over, pushing the, pushing the reveal back and back and back. Then the queen mother comes in. There's this guy that tells a whole story about Daniel. Then Daniel comes in and he recounts the whole story about Nebuchadnezzar, pushing the tension back and back and back and back. He's de- delaying the reveal. Daniel's speech, he's got the flashback. He repeats and emphasizes the king's sin. He emphasizes his pride, the sacrilege, his idolatry. That he's not just, he's not just misusing these, uh, these vessels and treating them profanely. He's actually worshiping false gods with them. And, I, and it's, it's sort of beautiful the way that the narrator and, uh, and Daniel himself in the story uh, call them they don't won't, won't even doesn't even name the gods it's just the gods of silver and gold and bronze and wood and stone uh, and he's using these vessels to praise those gods he's committing idolatry he's worshiping gods that don't exist um, you remember remember the quotation from last week that we had on the screen um, from Cornell West he said uh, I was really struck when I when I heard Cornell, Cornell West say this he said I Somebody asked him, you know, what do we do to try to draw people back in who have, who have lost faith? And Cornell West said, you know, I come from the school of thought that thinks that a certain kind of atheism is always healthy. He says, because it at least cleans the deck. He says, atheists start from the position that all gods are idols. He says, and most gods are idols. And so maybe the God that you lost faith in was probably an idol to begin with. 
And so, good thing you lost faith. And then he says, now the question will be whether you will be open uh, in your soul to something larger than you that can connect you with justice and love. Now, I want to add to what Cornell West said there and say that nature abhors a vacuum. And when we lose faith in whatever false god we've been worshiping, something is going to snap into place there. And usually it's your own self. Usually... Uh, idolatry is not just worshiping of a false god, but worshiping of our own selves, which is far more dangerous. Uh, Belshazzar is praising these false gods, but he's really aggrandizing himself. And that's, a, uh, that's an idolatry that's far harder to shake. These gods of silver and gold and bronze and wood and stone, these gods don't see Only the true God sees, says Daniel. The only God that Belshazzar doesn't honor is the true God. And why? Why is Belshazzar so anxious to make a mockery of this God? Because this God makes demands. The gods of silver and gold and bronze and wood and stone, they don't make demands on him. They let him be as arrogant and oppressing as he pleases. But the God of Israel makes demands on him and tells him that he must be just. The God of Israel tells him that he has to care for the poor. The God of Israel tells him that he has to restrain his lustful appetites. And so this is the God that he chooses to mock. The writing appears in verse 5, but the explanation is delayed all the way to verse 25. And all through that, Delay. What we as a reader are wondering is, what is God going to do about this? What does this writing mean? And what is God going to finally do about this sacrilege? About this blasphemy? And so the writing is introduced, and Daniel describes it for us. All right. Now I've I've delayed your reveal. Okay. Uh, you know why couldn't those uh, wise men read it? Because, you know. There, was, there were no vowels um, in, uh, the, the, in Aramaic or in Hebrew. It was just the consonants. So you kind of had to, it's like the, it was like those letters were there to help you remember what it said, not to tell you what it said. You kind of already had to know the content in order to read something. Um, and so just this string of eight letters or ten letters appears on the wall. No one can read it. They're all, they're all stuck together one after another. There are no spaces or vowels. Um, you wouldn't be able to read it even if it was in, in English. Um, so we need Daniel. And Daniel tells us what the words are. They are mene, mene, tekel, and parson. Those are Aramaic words with Hebrew cognates. All right? And what they mean in that language is mene is a, uh, a large weight, measure of weight, like a pound. Um, a tekel is a small weight, like an ounce, roughly. Um, and a parson, or a perez, is a half of a mene. So it's kind of like he looks at the wall and he says, it says, pound, pound, ounce, half pound. Or they're also kind of denominations of money. So he could be saying, it's both, right? Dollar, dollar, penny, half dollar. You know, we still don't know why dollar, dollar, penny, half dollar is written on the wall. And so he tells us what it means, why God 
sent those words particularly. Mene, Babylon's time has come. It's a, it's a full measure. Mene, mene. Uh, the, the days of your, remember, not your days, the days of your kingdom, God has numbered them. They have been measured in full. And you've been measured, and you're, you're a penny worth. You do not stand up. You're an ounce. And a half pound, your kingdom has been divided and taken from you. The fact is, you know, if you've been paying attention to the prophets, if you've been paying attention to Daniel himself, uh, you know that God always intended to overthrow the Babylonians at this time. The 70 years are fulfilled that he said there was going to be. So Belshazzar blaspheming with these vessels and this this great sacrilege and desecration. Uh, In one sense, it's like the last straw, but in another sense, it's merely the final expression of what was always wrong with Babylon in the first place. Babylon was always founded on pride. Babylon was always full of sacrilege. Babylon was always full of idolatry. Babylon had always worshipped its own self. The kings of Babylon had always been full of pride and sacrilege and idolatry and self-worship. This is always the nature of human kingdoms. Every human kingdom that has ever been has been founded on pride and sacrilege and idolatry and self-worship. And God brings an end to them. And Babylon in spades. This is the nature of human kingdoms. This is the nature of the human kingdom that you live in. Now, I'm not trying to pick on America particularly because this would be true if we were in in Germany. This would be true if we were in South Africa. This would be true if we were in Brazil. This would be true if we were, uh, you know, in some ancient culture in Siberia. It would be true because this is what is true of every human kingdom. Belshazzar is doing what he is doing because that is who he is. That is who Babylon is. This is not merely the last straw. This is merely the final declaration of what has always been true of the, and the reason that this judgment day has always been coming. Notice that, that the, the, the handwriting appears on the wall the night that Darius shows up and kills Belshazzar. But Darius, who we think is probably another name for Cyrus. Notice in this book, people have different names. Darius is probably Cyrus the Great, who is the king who conquered uh, Babylon. Uh, Cyrus has been on his way for months. So this judgment was always about to happen. And Belshazzar's sacrilege is just is the, the reason being declared in time and history as to why this has always been coming. It is who Babylon is. It is who human kingdoms are. I mean, I'll challenge you to show me a kingdom in history that didn't have these features. This is who we are. This is who human beings are. We are a people who can't stand the fact that the true God makes demands on us. We want to be in charge of our own selves. We want to worship our own selves. We want to make our own moral laws. We want to make our own moral choices. We want to be free to indulge 
our own pleasure. We want to be free to indulge our oppressive impulses. We want to be free to hate. We want to be free to fear. We want to be free to fight and do violence. We can't stand it. This is who we are. God shows up and makes demands on us, and we want to do what Belshazzar is doing. We want to flout his authority and flaunt our power and eat and drink in his face with his holy vessels. We want to do sacrilege to the vessels of his presence. How do you know that this is true? This is what we do. What we do is reject the true God in order to worship ourselves because we love our own pleasure and our own power and our own pride. But what does God do? God is a God, in contrast, who gives himself to us. In Psalm 78, all the way near the end, verse 61, it's, it's about this episode where the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. It says in verse 61, God delivered his power into captivity and his glory into the hand of the foe. The Ark of the Covenant was the the manifest presence of God. And God gave his power into captivity, it says. And a few verses later, well, before I get to those few verses later, he gave the Ark to the Philistines, he gave his people and his temple vessels to the Babylonians. He gave his very self to us in Jesus Christ. And what did we do with Jesus? We did the same thing to Jesus that Belshazzar did with the vessels. God gave Babylon his people. He gave Babylon the vessels of his presence. But instead of learning from his people, and instead of using those those vessels to call on his name, They enslave his people, make them captives, and commit sacrilege and desecrate the vessels. God gave the human race, that's who Babylon is. God gave the human race this world, and instead of caring for it, instead of beautifying it, we use it for our self-indulgence, our pride, our oppression. It's who we are. God gave himself to us in Jesus the true vessel of his presence. But instead of clinging to him to be healed, instead of submitting to his ways of love and humility and justice, we desecrated the true vessel of God's presence by horrifically murdering him. This is who we are. This is who the human race is. But what is Jesus with us. Jesus comes to break the cycle. We're a crucifying people. We're a desecrating people. We're a selfish, self-centered, prideful people. God is a self-giving, loving, just God. Jesus breaks the cycle by saying on the cross, Father, forgive them. Jesus prayed for us as we were committing the ultimate desecration, the ultimate sacrilege, the ultimate blasphemy, the ultimate violence, he prayed for us that God would forgive us. And those few verses later in Psalm 78, it 
It says, then the Lord awoke from sleep like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. The evil that we commit, God destroys. He gives himself over to us. He, he surrendered himself to death and destruction. But then he was raised and he awoke like a, and shouted like a drunk man and put his adversaries to rout. Parson, Daniel says, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Who is God? He is God who is able to take the kingdom away from desecrators and sacrilegious blasphemers and violent people like us and give it to another. Give it to its true owner, to Christ Jesus himself, who rules with peace and justice. Instead of being divided and cut up in Christ's kingdom, we're united and we're given to the rightful king. We're united in him. We're united before him. And we're united as he invites us to his table. Belshazzar committed this arrogant, boastful, blasphemous feast. Our king invites us to his own feast. Instead of a meal that breeds arrogance and desecration and violence, this is a meal that grants us humility and holiness.